This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is a Christmas message and invitation. In the first half, Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints shares his talk, A Message at Christmas. Then in the second half, we'll hear Dr. Scott Farron on Christmas and Christ's invitation to become as a little child. Here's Elder Christofferson. Well, Christmas is coming, but so are final exams. So while Christmas is coming, stress is already here. Years ago, when my wife Kathy and I were in your place, the schedule was a bit different. The fall semester ended in January, and finals came after the Christmas holiday. So we would all dutifully take a suitcase or a box of books home with us or wherever we were going for the Christmas break. We had every intention of devoting hours to studying for finals. In addition to celebrating Christmas. Of course, we never cracked the book. Rather, we just felt guilty the whole time. And it ruined the holiday. So, if you're looking for sympathy from me because you have final exams right before Christmas, forget it. In all seriousness, I do wish you the best on your finals, and may your preparations be fully rewarded with perhaps a little divine aid thrown in for good measure. And may this particular Christmas season be for you a season of renewal. May it be blessed with a deep sense of gratitude. It's interesting to read some of the accounts of Christmas from our pioneer forebearers. Elizabeth Huffaker wrote of the very first Christmas in the Salt Lake Valley, December 1847. I remember our first Christmas in the valley. We all worked as usual. The men gathered sagebrush and some plowed, for though it had snowed, the ground was still soft, and the plows were used nearly the entire day. We celebrated the day on the Sabbath—Christmas was on Saturday. When all gathered around the flagpole in the center of the fort, and there we held a meeting, and what a meeting it was. We sang praises to God. We all joined in the evening prayer, and the speaking that day has always been remembered. There were words of thanksgiving and cheer. Not a despairing word was uttered. The people were hopeful and buoyant because of their faith in the great work they were undertaking. After the meeting, there was handshaking all around. Some wept with joy. The children played in the enclosure and around the sagebrush, a sagebrush fire at night. We gathered and sang, Come, Come, Ye Saints. We had boiled rabbit and a little bread for our dinner. Many who were there for that first Christmas in the valley later remarked that in the sense of perfect peace and goodwill, they never had a happier Christmas in all their lives. It's difficult for most of us to appreciate what a blessing it was for them simply to have peace. Very little of the necessities of life, but at last, peace. Susan Wells remembered Christmas two years later in Salt Lake, December 1849, when there was a more formal party, a ball. I well remember Brother Brigham's Christmas party of 1849. 
Like the girls of today, on receiving my invitation, the first thought was, nothing to wear. <laughs> this was literally true, as all our clothing was shabby and patched. Necessity is the mother of invention. So after careful consideration, the wagon cover that had done such faithful service during our journey across the plains was brought out. We couldn't afford canvas for our wagon cover, so ours consisted of several thicknesses of unbleached factory cloth. <clears throat> this was carefully dyed, and as good luck would have it, it turned out a very pretty brown. We made this into dresses for myself and sister, trimmed with silk from an old cape of mother's. This cape, black, lined with light brown, not only furnished trimming for our dresses, but I made bonnets from the black with quilted lining of the light brown. I had embroidered buckskin moccasins, but I believe for this occasion, Father, who was a shoemaker, made a pair of slippers from his old bootlegs. I tell you, my first ball dress was stunning. On a light note, we have this undated remembrance from James William Nielsen in San Pete. There were three big boys on the farm, Jim, Tom, and Wayne. I used to sleep with them in the loft over the house. We spent one Christmas Eve at their house, and we all hung up our stockings. The stockings were all full the next morning. The boys gave me some of their candy, and it tasted like their feet smelled but I ate it anyway. <laughs> Hannah Dalton had this tender memory of her 1862 Christmas in Parowan. All of us children hung up our stockings on Christmas Eve. We jumped up early in the morning to see what Santa had brought, but there was not a thing in them. Mother wept bitterly. She went to her box and got a little apple and cut it in little tiny pieces, and that was our Christmas. But I've never forgotten how I loved her dear hands as she was cutting that apple. Let us be especially thankful for family and friends and the necessities and comforts of life. I'm grateful that December also brings an occasion to contemplate again the life and contributions of the Prophet Joseph Smith his birthday being on December 23rd. It's hard fully to appreciate what he achieved as an instrument in the Lord's hands in an environment of constant opposition, persecution, and challenge. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. I don't suppose that in this dispensation anyone has learned to fear God and not man better than the prophet. The Lord required some very hard things of Joseph. He did them, and we are all beneficiaries. The translation and publication of the Book of Mormon was a signal achievement and one that is foundational to the success of the Lord's cause in this last dispensation. Through the Book of Mormon and by his visions and revelations, Joseph has revealed Jesus Christ in his true character as the only begotten Son of God and Redeemer of mankind. In a time to come, we will see the Prophet Joseph honored as the worthy head of this great and last 
dispensation. The one dispensation destined to succeed, even though all previous dispensations have ended in apostasy. Especially at this season, we remember the prophet's personal relationship with the Savior and the testimony last of all which he gave of Christ that he lives. Joseph's witness of the living Christ brings to my mind the statement of President Gordon B. Hinckley. There would be no Christmas if there had not been Easter. The babe Jesus of Bethlehem would be but another baby without the redeeming Christ of Gethsemane and Calvary and the triumphant fact of the resurrection. A while ago, a person who's been a member of the Church for many years asked me, why do I need Jesus Christ? I keep the commandments. I'm a good person. Why do I need a Savior? I must say that uh, this member's failure to understand this most fundamental part of our doctrine, this foundational element of the plan of salvation, took my breath away. Well, to start with, I replied, there is this small matter of death. I assume you don't want death to be your final status, and without Christ there would be no resurrection. I talked about other things, such as the need that even the best people have for the forgiveness and cleansing that is only possible through the Savior's atoning grace. I'm confident you could have given a thoughtful answer, perhaps better than mine. At another level, however, the question might be, can't God do whatever He wants and save us just because He loves us without the need for a Savior? Phrased this way, there are quite a few people in today's world who would share that question. They believe in God and a post-mortal existence, but assume that because God loves us, it doesn't matter so much what we do or don't do. He just takes care of things. This philosophy has ancient roots. Nehor, for example, testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. You recognize in Nehor's doctrine echoes of an approach to salvation put forth by Lucifer, a son of the morning, surely the most tragic of tragic figures ever. As God once explained, Lucifer is the same which was from the beginning. And he came before me, saying, Behold, here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind, that not one soul shall be lost, and surely I will do it. Wherefore, give me thine honor. But behold, my beloved son, which was my beloved and chosen from the beginning, said unto me, Father, thy will be done and the glory be thine forever. This was not simply a case of Jesus supporting the Father's plan and Lucifer proposing a slight modification. Lucifer's proposal would have destroyed the plan by eliminating our opportunity to act independently. Lucifer's plan was founded on coercion, making all the other sons and daughters of God, all of us, essentially his puppets. As the Father sums it up, Wherefore, 
because that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, had given him, and also that I should give unto him mine own power, by the power of mine only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. And he became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive at his will, as many as would not hearken unto my voice. By contrast, doing it the Father's way offers us an essential mortal experience. By mortal experience, I mean choosing our course, tasting the bitter that we might know to prize the good, learning, repenting, and growing, becoming beings capable of acting for ourselves rather than simply being acted upon, and ultimately overcoming evil and demonstrating our desire and our ability to live a celestial law. This requires a knowledge of good and evil on our part with the capacity and opportunity to choose between the two. And it requires accountability for choices made, otherwise they aren't really choices. Choice, in turn, requires law or predictable outcomes. We must be able, by a particular action or choice, to cause a particular outcome or result, and by the opposite choice create the opposite outcome. If actions don't have fixed consequences, then one has no control over outcomes and choice is meaningless. Using justice as a synonym for law, Alma states, now the work of justice, that is, the operation of law, cannot be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. It is his perfect understanding and use of law, or in other words, his justice, that gives God his power. We need the justice of God. We need a system of fixed and immutable laws that he himself abides by and employs so that we can have and exercise agency. This justice is the foundation of our freedom, our freedom to act, and our only path to ultimate happiness. Joseph Smith tells us that that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. But we have to admit, none of us has always and unfailingly been governed by law, and we really cannot look to the law or justice to preserve and perfect us when we've broken the law. So being just but also being motivated by love, our Heavenly Father created mercy. And He did this by offering His only begotten Son as propitiation for our sin, a being that could, with His Atonement, satisfy justice putting us right with the law so that it is once again supporting and preserving us, not condemning us. Alma explains, And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect just God and a merciful God also. He continued, There is a law given, 
and a punishment or a consequence or outcome affixed and a repentance granted, which repentance mercy claimeth, otherwise justice claimeth the creature and executeth the law and inflicteth the punishment. If not so, the works of justice would be destroyed and God would cease to be God. But God ceaseth not to be God, and mercy claimeth the penitent, and mercy cometh because of the atonement. The penitent, of course, are those who take responsibility and accept his mercy by repenting. So it is because of the atonement of Christ that we can recover from bad choices. And it is because of the atonement of Christ that the impact on us of others' sins and mistakes and every other injustice is redressed. To be made holy, to be made whole, we need a Savior. And God needed to include a Savior in His plan if He was to have a chance of saving and exalting any of His children. So the answer to our question is no. God cannot act any way He pleases to save a person. He must do it in a way that upholds and conforms to immutable law. And thanks be to God, He's done so by providing a Savior. And let's remember, Satan was not volunteering to be our Savior. He was not interested in suffering or dying for anyone. He wasn't going to shed any blood. He wanted the glory, honor, and power of God without paying any price. What he failed to understand or to believe is that one cannot possess the power of God without being the embodiment of justice. Lucifer was seeking for power without goodness. He supposed that he could be a law unto himself, meaning the law would be whatever he said it was at any, at any given moment, and he could change his mind at any time. In that way, no one could count on anything, and no one would have the ability to be an independent actor. He would be supreme. No one else could advance. Jesus, on the other hand, understood that both justice and mercy would be required for his brothers and sisters to advance. And with the Father, he was seeking not to coerce and dominate us, but to free and lift us so that we might be above all and with the Father have all power. How we ought to rejoice that this firstborn Son in the Spirit was willing to become the only begotten Son in the flesh, to suffer incomprehensibly, to die ignominiously, to redeem us. He perfectly unites justice and mercy. He saves us from, not in, but from our sins. And He also redeems us from the fall and from spiritual and physical death. He opens the door to immortality and eternal life. It would be impossible to plumb the depths of His love. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes 
we are healed. As Christmas approaches, I realize that some may have concerns and perhaps some anxiety about the future. There may be a lot of noise in your life, more or less constant engagement online without downtime, without time to be quiet and reflect and think, without time to look inside and discern where you are, where you should be going. You may be influenced by unrealistic expectations, like perfection should be immediate, or uninterrupted happiness and success is supposed to be the norm in life. I hope you'll lay aside these misconceptions and dial down the noise and take some time this Christmas season, at least an hour if not more, to reflect on the wonder and majesty of the Son of God. Let it be an hour of reassurance and renewal for you. On a prior Christmas time, I wrote this message. When we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, we appropriately reflect on what was to follow. His birth was infinitely significant because of the things he would experience and suffer so that he might better succor us, all culminating in his crucifixion and resurrection. But I also think it's appropriate this time of year just to think about that baby in the manger. Don't be too overwhelmed or occupied with what is to come. Take a quiet, peaceful moment to ponder the beginning of his life, the culmination of heavenly prophecy, but really the earthly beginning for him. Take time to relax, be at peace, and see this little child in your mind. Don't be too concerned or overwhelmed with what is coming in his life or in your life. Instead, take a peaceful moment to contemplate perhaps the most serene moment in the history of the world when all of heaven rejoiced with the message, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. With Moroni, I would commend you to seek this Jesus, of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of them, may be and abide in you forever. I invoke our Heavenly Father's peace and blessings upon you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is a Christmas message and invitation. We've just heard from Elder D. Todd Christofferson. After the break, we'll return with Scott Farron for Christmas and Christ's invitation to become as a little child. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is a Christmas message and invitation. Now, Dr. Scott Farron, professor in the BYU Department of Educational and Leadership Foundations, with Christmas and Christ's invitation to become as a little child. I love Christmas, and I love BYU devotionals. 
Since my academic focus is education law, and since much of that discipline and practice is focused on protecting the rights and persons of children, I'd like to discuss what it means in the perfect economy of the Lord's kingdom to become as a little child. I believe Christmas and the birth of the Christ child helps us explore this concept. When our Heavenly Father wanted to save the world, He didn't take over a country or develop a militia. He sent a helpless child to a choice and worthy woman and a humble and believing man living in insecure circumstances in a conquered land occupied by a hostile force. The harsh geopolitical and military circumstances of Christ's birth should remind us that Heavenly Father can bless us even if the external circumstances of our lives aren't necessarily easy or peaceful. Herod the Great ruled over that land under Rome's ultimate control, and he was mighty and built magnificent monuments, at least one of which overshadowed the land when Christ was born, being visible in all directions for miles. We can't help but contrast Herod's mighty palace with the stable. If we knew for sure where that stable was, was, wouldn't we wish to visit the site of that sacred birth? But who cares as much about anything Herod built besides perhaps one or two of our learned faculty members? To most of us, with a normal threshold for boredom, we ignore Herod. Christ is infinitely more important. We seek Christ's words and probably have many of his words memorized. Not everyone, apparently, because I always watch Jeopardy, and I, those brainiacs on Jeopardy seem to never have gone to seminary. They don't know anything about the scriptures, while we Mormons, in turn, have trouble with the potent potables category. But you and I celebrate and rejoice in the words and the happenings of Christ's birth. Does anyone, even the most bookishly versant among us, celebrate the circumstances or the words of Herod and his birth? The New Testament shows us something of the Christ child we celebrate at Christmas in the perfect young adult he has become. He hasn't become full of himself, self-important, careworn or, br careworn or brusque. Although Isaiah described him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Christ doesn't constantly groan under the weight of his office. Rather, we read in Luke, and they brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. When Christ says that of such is the kingdom of God, it's possible that he's also giving us a great insight here into his nature and the nature of God and godliness. Christ continued and taught, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. We must receive the supernal Christmas gift of the kingdom of God as a little child. If you and I in our weakness follow the plan of happiness our Heavenly Father has established, made possible by the gift of His Son, we will receive the greatest gift possible, eternal life with our Heavenly Father. How are we to receive and value such a gift? Perhaps we receive and value it by living abundantly, by repenting and becoming converted, and by becoming as little children. Christ warned, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. For our purposes today, I wonder if we shouldn't each consider ourselves as one who might offend one of these little ones when we let the world destroy the believing and loving child within ourselves by being weighed down and frightened by the world and our responsibilities and challenges. 
Christ seems to call us to put off childish fears and instead be trustingly, courageously childlike. I have a friend, Mosey White, who as an infant was one of the unwitting heroes of World War II. Mosey's parents, and I guess Mosey herself, were part of the underground in Norway, and she acted as an unwitting secret courier carrying secret papers hidden in her diapers where German soldiers were unlikely to look for obvious reasons. Think of the fears her parents had to overcome. Had they developed what Christ meant when he asked us to develop a childlike nature? Is it possible in their childlike nature that Mosey's parents couldn't be frightened enough to accept that wrong was right or that there was nothing they could do to stop the evil of the Third Reich? Mosey's father was later captured by the Gestapo and sent to a concentration camp, which he ultimately survived. Mosey's parents saw evil and they did what a beautiful child will do. They tried to make it all better. Perhaps because of being raised by such parents, Mosey today has become a woman of great strength and courage. She's a cancer survivor that has a twinkle and is merry in all she does, who served for years as president of the Provo School Board and as president of the American Association of School Boards, traveling and speaking extensively nationally, internationally, and, and seeking only to bless the lives of children. Does Mosey's parents' situation and response remind us of the birth of the Christ child in a land and among a people oppressed by both military might and false tradition as Norway and the world were by the Third Reich? Christmas gives us time to reflect on these things and to make memories in our quest for conversion to the childlike. I always tell my children, and I remind us, we only get a finite number of Christmases on this earth, so we should enjoy each one. Never get too mature to enjoy all the classic Christmas traditions, movies, and Christmas thing jokes. What did the snowman order at the restaurant? A hot chocolate and a mop. What did Santa call the reindeer that couldn't fly? Venison. I often invite my children to stop, you're bloodthirsty, to stop and consciously imprint a memory of a mental snapshot during Christmas. Perhaps of a snow-covered mountain on the Continental Divide, New Mexico, while cross-country skiing, or hiking to the top of a 12,000-foot peak in the Sangre de Cristos, or in the case of my sister Paula's family, making metal match snapshots of scaring other family members during Christmas by sending agents, and I've been that secret agent before, to leave this creepy snowman outside the front door of some lucky selected member of their family around the country. They open their front door and find this creepy snowman staring balefully, broodingly, and ominously at them. I regularly enjoin my children to treasure and keep these types of mental snapshots from Christmas and not to fear snowman, a disorder labeled hominokionophobia. By the way, the fear of Santa is the disorder labeled claustrophobia. Now, I, I'm sorry. Now, I know Christmas is a mixed blessing for BYU students and professors. Beautiful Christmas lights appear thanks to the efforts of our grounds crew on campus, but also worry over finals and final papers stalks the campus. Students are making plans to travel home or they'll dramatically collapse into their loved one's arms, withered husk of their former selves, blighted and trembling from stress and lack of sleep and appropriate nutrition during finals, bleeding chocolate. Christmas is really most wondrous for little children and for withered BYU students. I hope it is not shocking now at Christmas time to reveal to my own daughters, one of whom is here, and the other, a BYU senior on a mission in Nicaragua currently, that on Christmas Eve, after we put out the horse feed and feed buckets for Santa's reindeer, please don't forget them, I was the one who emptied them after they went to bed. I'm sorry, I hope you're not shocked. What about childlike wonder and hope do we all try to preserve in ourselves and in our children through Christmas and its gentle deceptions? Is it a sense of wonder, 
a sense of the possible as an antidote to fear, I'd suggest we all need to develop a sense of wonder as we ponder the atonement and the childlike nature Christ wants us to develop. I remember Christmases today from my childhood, and they remind me now of the love and preparation that my parents went through to provide great experiences for us at Christmas. To show my age, I remember a Christmas when I dearly wanted what, some, what most of my friends already had, J.C. Penny walkie-talkies. We used them to play Army. Imagine the dim recesses of time before the cell phones and Twittering you're now experiencing. Contact was not constant then. I know there are here some now managing text and Twitter contacts as I speak, arranging dates or Christmas travel, or taunting Yankees fan that the Red Sox won the World Series. Cue close-up of my Red Sox tie. On that Christmas long ago in the 60s, I thought walkie-talkies cost so much I had no hope of getting one. When I got one, it constituted a miracle to me that I received a little frisson of happiness still remembered. Almost immediately, I went out with my friends on that Christmas day in Arizona to use our walkie-talkies to play Army, as was our custom in those days, complete with gun sounds, medics who would attend to you after you'd been wounded. These medics would come up to the wounded and shamanistically wave their hands, muttering the magic words, fix, 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 and you were then back in the game. Now, I realize today that acting out such a bloody scenario would be seen as troubling and would violate most schools' safe school policies if it occurred during recess. Times have changed. Television in my childhood consisted of a grand total of three to five channels in Arizona, one of those from Mexico showing bullfights all the time and one an educational channel, and who cared about that? Then primetime weekly, weekly included dose of the popular TV show Combat with Vic Morrow at 12 o'clock high about B-17 pilots or other such shows based on World War II. It's a little different today. Today, most of you students don't know that Jimmy Stewart, star of the great Christmas classics, Mr. Kruger's, Kruger's, Mr. Kruger's Christmas, and It's a Wonderful Life, served through the horrors of World War II as a wing commander flying B-17s with great courage and skill. And I might add, men wouldn't follow anybody that wasn't really followable as a great leader in those days in that type of fighting. Most of you are not raised by a decorated World War II combat veteran who saw and inflicted horrific death as a B-17 pilot flying daylight bombing raids over Germany when he was younger than most of you. Thank you, Dad, and men like you. And yet after the hell that such parents and such a society had experienced, such men and women as my parents and perhaps your grandparents our great-grandparents, through Christmas and throughout our lives, protected us and let us be children untouched by the horrors they had waded through. When I practiced this, I never got emotional. They even let us play war without scaring us too much about what it actually meant. They knew that Christmas hasn't promised we can avoid the horrors this world is capable of inflicting upon us. They also knew that we are to become as a little child by choice, despite the world's horrors. When you were a child, you probably also knew what you wanted for Christmas. Similarly, when you were asked what you wanted to be, you had wonderful plans. How has your career path changed since then? I don't notice a plethora of cowboys, firemen, or Disney princesses on campus. When you were a child, did you decide, well, I don't know if I'm quite up to the preparation and entrance exams to be a doctor or the physical preparation required to be a fireman? Did you decide you can't live on the low wages paid to cowboys? To a child, at least to a healthy child who hasn't been harmed by abuse, the world and Christmas itself are all still fresh and possible. 
So what happened to you and me as we grew older? And most importantly, what happened to us that Christ wants us to combat in our maturity to become as little children? Why do we tend to become stuffy, scaredy cats? There's nothing sadder than youth being wasted on the young. As an old guy, I admonish you young BYU students to not waste your youth and not be big scaredy cats, you big duty heads. We're supposed to become as little children. That was crossing over from childlike to childish so you can tell the difference. Becoming as little children shouldn't include a lot of fear about our future. In heaven's economy, true maturity is a conversion to become childlike. With all the duties and responsibilities that weigh him down, I'd submit that our prophet, President Monson, is a prototypical example of maturing into this childlike ideal. My brethren, I reiterate that as holders of the priesthood of God, it is our duty to live our lives in such a way that we may be examples of righteousness for others to follow. As I pondered how we might best provide such examples, I thought of an experience I had some years ago while attending a state conference. During the general session, I observed a young boy sitting with his family on the front row of the state center. I was seated on the stand. As the meeting progressed, I began to notice that if I crossed one leg over the other, the young boy would do the same thing. If I reversed the motion and crossed the other leg, he would follow suit. I would put my hands in my lap and he would do the same. I rested my chin in my hand, and he also did so. Whatever I did, he would imitate my actions. This continued until the time approached for me to address the congregation. I decided to put him to the test. <laughs> I looked squarely at him, certain I had his attention. And then I wiggled my ears. <laughs> my wife told me not to say that. <laughs> he made a vain attempt to do the same, but I had him. He just couldn't quite get his ears to wiggle. He turned to his father, who was sitting next to him, and whispered something to him. He pointed to his ears and then to me. As his father looked in my direction, obviously to see my ears wiggle, I sat solemnly with my arms folded, <laughs> not moving a muscle. The father glanced back skeptically at his son who looked slightly defeated. <laughs> he finally gave me a sheepish grin, shrugged his shoulders. That's a great act to follow. I know only a little about the many challenges our prophet is faced with regularly, but I do know they're weighty, and yet he does not appear careworn and beaten by maturity into losing the child within. So what can we learn about becoming as a little child from our beloved prophet? I hope it isn't inappropriate at this point to say that my wife is not that mature. For one thing, she's about the only person outside of kindergartners who laughs reliably at my jokes. 
She's been a professor in Boston University School of Management and a highly paid consultant in the petroleum industry and other management settings, including Boeing, a name that kids want to say a lot, Boeing, Boeing, it's just an interesting name. Now she teaches kindergarten. One beautiful day, she had the courage to say, although I like being a management consultant, what I really want to do is to teach kindergarten and be really poor. So she made a major career change. You should see her in kindergarten. She reminds me of those Disney princesses you see surrounded by her kindergarten kids. I expect to see birds singing and butterflies. Life is great in kindergarten and you get to wear cool Halloween costumes. That, you know, it's really kind of cool. I invite us to become like her and like her kindergartners with their fresh and courageous approach to careers and the future. I'd suggest my young brothers and sisters that you and I may have lost some hope as we've matured. Moroni said, wherefore man must hope, or he cannot receive an inheritance in the place which thou hast prepared. God hasn't sent us fearfully here to creep through our life and education. I'd suggest even in our harder, hardest classes, we could act this out a bit more by worrying less about what the professor thinks is important or what will be on the test, and by worrying more about exploring what we find fascinating or the Spirit tells us to find fascinating in the subject matter of our classes, and by taking time to prepare to serve our fellows in our world. One day soon, hard to believe, you'll leave BYU, an extraordinary place. Will you have crept through this experience preserving a business-like GPA but not fostering childlike wonder not making a powerful impact on hearts and individual circumstances? Do you fear and tremble before graduate school entrance requirements? Without hope, you cannot be pleasing to God. And as a little secret to you, without hope, curiosity, and wonder, you're really not that pleasing to your professors either. Availing ourselves of hope, curiosity, and wonder, and adding faith to the mix, we should not choose too safe a plan in our lives. Now, we all know that if at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is not your sport. I'm not suggesting risking anything that's going to foreshadow your time and mortality. I'm suggesting getting a little more childlike joy out of trying more things, even if they seem behind, beyond us. I'm suggesting not being slavishly concerned about convention, future earnings, or society's expectations if they run counter to the core of our best and most unique childlike nature individually. We need to be fearless and not faint-hearted. As a BYU student long ago, my brother-in-law was an example of fearlessness and not faint-heartedness. Since the statute of limitations has run, the story can now be told. In the dim recesses of time when phones were rotary and thumbs were for hitchhiking, not texting, computers were huge and programs and data were entered into them on computer cards. This gentleman, who's just realizing what I'm talking about, we'll call him Frank because that's his name, was an electrical engineering major here at BYU. The byproduct of entering data into computer cards then was that in punching them, there were resulting leftover tiny bits of card paper stock, you know, a little chad. Frank and some undisclosed accomplices collected and introduced this computer confetti into the, or chad, into the ventilating ducts of my sister's BYU apartment so that later when they turned on their cooler or heaty fan, they'd be greeted by a Christmas-like show of paper snow. Unfortunately, such chatter confetti didn't all come out at once. In fact, due to static cling and the electricity and interactions of metal, dyes, metal ducts and energized small bits of paper, something an electrical engineer should have known, there was a shower of confetti from then on every time the cooler fans went on. I dare say that someone in this audience may have just learned why the vents in their apartment still occasionally waft stray bits of computer card chat gently under their carpet. Unsurprisingly, this greatly annoyed my sister's roommates. They were not sufficiently childlike, I guess, but his pluck and daring warmed the cockles of my sister's heart. 
The point is, although Frank may have exercised questionable judgment, it was kind of cool. He dared and he won fair maid because his own heart was not faint. Now, President Samuelson and members of the law enforcement community, I'm not advocating pranks. It's more a mindset and childlike courage I advocate. A safer example may be my current colleague here at BYU, Chris Sorensen. When he was the principal of an elementary school here in Utah, a young man with a disability that confined him to a wheelchair appeared at his school with his parents to enroll. Chris wondered what class to assign him to. While the school secretary gave the boy and his parents a tour of the school, Chris privately knelt in his office and prayed about this student. He felt directed to assign him to the largest class, one already much larger than the other two sixth grade classes. He didn't know why. Nevertheless, he took courage and trusted in the prompting he'd learned to recognize. He ignored the possible displeasure of a teacher with an already large class size. He ignored any other concerns because he had learned not to fear when he had received an answer in prayer. When Chris walked this student to his new class, to his surprise, as soon as this new student wheeled into the class, he lit up and addressed the teacher by name with evident relief and joy. Unknown to anyone at the school, the two knew each other well. That particular teacher had been a loved and trusted scout leader in a previous ward, and the families had lost touch with each other. Taking the courage to seek and obey the Spirit's prompting resulted in a successful start in a new school for a child who probably needed such a, a start. In our lives, perhaps we could, in like way, overcome fear more, seek wonder more, follow the promptings of the Spirit more, and perhaps develop a bit more childlike tenacity in action and belief. Often we slink away from a challenge before we even rise to that challenge. We should consider aiming a bit higher than we are in our imagination, our love, our lives, and our academic pursuits. I'm reminded of Carola Reese. She wrote a book with her sister, We Were Not Alone, How an LDS Family Survived World War II Berlin. She spoke at our ward some years ago. Her family suffered because they, as members of the church, couldn't and didn't, living in Berlin, early members of the church, support the Nazi party. Her dad didn't get good work, and they had challenges, and her brother was drafted to serve on the Russian front. He made his own private covenant with God that he would not take a life for, as he put it, Hitler's war. When Russian soldiers approached his foxhole from time to time and advances on the Russian front, he would shoot to the right or the left or into the ground, but he would not shoot at his fellow humans for Hitler. This was his own decision, and I'm not criticizing any others who've made different decisions in that or other wars. He and his fellow soldiers often would laugh and say, hey, what's wrong with us? Because repeatedly, soldiers would not come to their foxholes. This brother survived the war after this private covenant he made with God, willing to take the consequences that he would not take a life, and he never had to take a life and he survived the war. Is this the childlike nature you and I should be developing? My dad, when he was flying B-17s, had an, I, I hope I can get through this part, had an experience where his engine was shot out and B-17 pilots fly in close formation so that the fighters that come against them have many interlocking fields of fire. They lost an engine and the whole group doesn't wait. They were returning after their bombing run and they have to leave the stragglers behind knowing they're going to be killed probably. He lost two engines. They're not supposed to be able to fly. He broke the throttle quadrant, which you could do, and you could over-rev the engine and they were going to try to make it back, but they were swarmed by fighters in his extremists. And at that moment, he prayed and he said, Dad, pray for me. 
His father, my grandfather, Ather Samuel Farron, got my grandmother and said, Levin's in trouble. We need to kneel and pray for him. Dad says, we were sworn by fighters that were going to finish us off. All of a sudden, it was as if we became invisible. They would fly right by us. He flew that plane home to England and successfully landed it, after which it was worthless. The ground crews presented with the, the, the placard from that B-17, and he still has it in his house today. As a courageous child, he cried out for his father because he believed in his father's faith. So what manner of child ought we to become this Christmas season? As King Benjamin counseled, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. He didn't counsel us to be fearful or to settle for a safe but boring job or career instead of a challenging and exciting mission in life. I submit that we should be ready to be cowboys if that's what our hearts and the spirit dictate, or kindergarten teachers, doctors, or molecular biologists, and we should live our lives with courage and submission to the Lord. This Christmas season, I invite each of us to foster and care more for the child of God within us, to bend to the exigencies of life and finances less, to take joy in the wonderful and simple journey to be the child that is like those who make up the kingdom of God. As Paul reminds us, for ye have not received the spirit, of, of the spirit again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We, may we trust the Father and develop the childlike attributes Christ and our prophet exemplify. May we cry out, Abba, Father, lovingly in words and action during this Christmas season, during our academic careers at BYU, in conclusion, throughout our lives as joint heirs with Christ, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was A Christmas Message and Invitation with thoughts from Elder D. Todd Christofferson and Dr. Scott E. Farron. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.